Hey everybody, welcome back. It's been some time. Hope I remember how to do this. I think it's been since July since I released an episode, but I'm excited to be back to it. It's been a busy few months in the time since the last episode. My wife and I have had a new baby, and I've changed to a different position at my job, and I started training for ultra marathons, so things have been hectic. Haven't been getting a lot of sleep recently, and to be perfectly frank, for a little while, I did lose the drive to continue the research and produce any of these podcasts, but I missed it. The drive is back, and I'm ready to start releasing episodes that hopefully are of the expected quality that you guys have all come to hope for. At least I hope that's what you think of my previous episodes. <laughs> anyway, starting today is really the reason I started this podcast in the first place. First place, when I started this podcast, I thought I'm going to do an episode on the Kennedy assassination. I never got around to it earlier, but now it's November. November was the month that Kennedy was assassinated. I thought, what a perfect time to do the Kennedy assassination. However, I cannot do it justice in one episode. So I actually probably will be doing it in three episodes. It depends how the research goes for the following two. Today's episode is more background information, really talking about the major players by major players, I mean John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald. Talk about their lives and just the background that leads up to November of 1963. And then we'll get into more of the actual assassination and pertinent details in the following episodes. So this is not the most action-packed episode. It's more biographical, but it is pertinent, pertinent and I hope to say vital information for understanding the next couple episodes. So let's start cranking this out. Once again, I'm back. This is the Curiosity Chronicles. I am your host, Brett Bilesma, and this is what I've been curious about lately. Starting this episode with John F. Kennedy in his early life. He was born in Brookline, Massachusetts, May 29, 1917. He's a fairly sickly child. He was not healthy, actually, for most of his life. But especially when he was younger, about three years old, he got scarlet fever, which at the time was very deadly, and he was close to passing away. Recovered and obviously went on with his life. He was mostly called Jack, so you'll hear me refer to him either as John F. Kennedy, JFK, or Jack. All the same people. I've kind of been using them interchangeably just because that's how I have studied it. He was the second of nine kids born to Joseph and Rose Kennedy. The nine kids were Joseph Jr., Jack, John, Rosemary, Kathleen, Eunice, Patricia, Robert, the... Robert Kennedy that we talked about in earlier episodes. Gene and Edward, also known as Ted Kennedy, who was later a U.S. senator, I believe. Senator or congressman. Didn't really look into that. Not important for this episode. Jack spent most of his younger life living in his older brother's shadow. Joe was his older brother, and they were very competitive, as near siblings are. And they had similar gifts, but Joe always had the better grades and was always the better athlete. Seems to go that way with older children, it seems like. Didn't help that Jack was smaller and, like I said, a bit sickly when he was younger. And Joseph Sr. encouraged the competition between them and all of his children, and Jack was often bested and beaten up by his brother Joe. Going forward, if I say Joe, that means Joseph Jr., and if I say Joseph, that means the father, just so we're aware. So by the time Jack was 14, he was sent to Choate. It is a private boarding school, and back then and now, it is considered one of the best boarding schools and elite private high schools in the country, and many powerful politicians and other influential people have spent their formative years there. 
So it is a good school for a 14-year-old boy to go that has ambition. Joe Jr. was already at Choate once again. Jack was following in his older brother's footsteps. And once again, he was being overshadowed. Jack was not what you would call a model Choate student. He got decent grades, but nothing spectacular, even though it was clear that he was very bright and well-read. But he was also untidy, had, quote, contempt for school rules and a penchant for juvenile pranks that mocked Choate's starchy image, end quote. That's from the book Jack by Jeffrey Parrott, his biography of the president. And Jack soon had disciples, almost literally. He had a group of friends that consisted of 12 other boys. He was the leader of these 12 boys, hence they were called his disciples. And they were troublemakers like Jack. It's actually kind of a funny story. The headmaster finally denounced this group of 13 in front of the entire school, calling them, quote, muckers, which meant a vulgar or ill-bred person, and thought that would shame them into behaving. Unfortunately, they loved it. They loved that nickname, and they formed the Choate Muckers Club, or the CMC, and they completed the look with a badge. They went to a jeweler, and they had a pin designed that was supposed to look like a fraternity pin, but it actually was a shovel made of 22 karat gold. The reason it was a shovel because a mucker was also someone who shoveled horse crap. And they pinned that to their shirts and wore it wherever they went as a badge of honor. It boiled over, finally. Again, this is a prestigious and very very old-school private institution. It did not look good to have troublemakers flaunting themselves all over the school, and basically by being troublemakers, they were throwing it back into the face of this stingy and stuffy school. So the headmaster brought the 13 muckers to his office and told them that they were being expelled. Now, this was not a real expulsion, not that they knew it at the time. Choate is a prestigious school for influential people, and their reputation would be horribly tarnished by expelling 13 students who were very well connected with fathers, mostly, who had connections. But the troublemakers, including Jack, did not know this. And so they thought, oh, okay, we better, we, better, uh, we better tighten up here. So after a few hours, the headmaster went to these kids and said, hey, we've decided to let you stay. But the headmaster, specifically knowing that Jack Kennedy was the head, or the, the, the ringleader of this muckers club, asked Joseph Kennedy, the father, to come down and deal with his son. In the headmaster's office, Joseph Kennedy played the dutiful father and promised to get his son in line. But once they left, he shared with his son Jack that he was secretly delighted with the Muckers Club, thought it was hilarious. And he told Jack, quote, If that crazy Muckers Club had been mine, you can be sure it wouldn't have started with an M. No, I'll let you infer what that means. (laughs) But it was at this point, it didn't really matter. Jack was 17 at this point. He was pretty much done and graduated with Choate. And he had decided, despite being accepted to both Princeton and Harvard, he decided that he was going to go to Harvard, where his brother Joe had already enrolled. It's a theme here. So despite being accepted to both Harvard and Princeton, Jack decided, mostly because his father told him so, that he was going to study for a year at the London School of Economics. Joe Joseph, excuse me, Joseph Sr. had sent Joe Jr. to study there for a year and thought Jack should do the same. After that year, Jack then went and enrolled in Harvard. And a little anecdote that's not something you would think would be important, but it may end up being very important later on. 
is Jack played football at Harvard. He was not as gifted as, as his brother, as I mentioned earlier, but he was a very hard worker and he did see the field. Now, during a football game, Jack Kennedy ruptured a disc in his back. And this may be what caused the well-documented back problems of Jack Kennedy, even into his presidency till the end of his life. He had back surgeries and wore braces and things like that. Now, that could end up becoming very important later on in one of the next episodes, but we'll get to that. But I wanted to make sure I mentioned that he injured his back playing football and his back continued to bother him for his entire life. Now, despite the fact that Jack Kennedy went to Choate, London School of Economics, now is at Harvard, and despite the fact that his father was a very well-connected and extremely wealthy man, Jack was not necessarily the ambitious member of that family. Now, he's being set up for success, and I have no doubt that if his life had taken a different path, he would have been successful. But it was his brother Joe that was the ambitious one. And from a young age, Joe Jr. had said that he wanted to be president. He wanted to be the first Catholic president of the United States. And it seemed like with his connections and his education and his drive, that that was definitely going to happen. Now, we know that didn't happen. If you listen to previous episodes of mine, you'll know why not. And I will touch on it a little bit later. Joseph, the father, during Jack and Joe's time at Harvard, was appointed ambassador to England in 1937. He took the family to England, but Joe and Jack stayed in the United States because, of course, they were still enrolled at Harvard. They did communicate quite often with their father through letters and telegrams, and Jack did spend a summer in England, and it really ignited his interest in current events and foreign affairs slash foreign policy. And 1937, of course, the Nazis were risen to power and starting to become belligerent in Europe, and it appeared that war was on the horizon. When Jack went back to Harvard, in his senior year, he wrote a his senior thesis on how England was unprepared for war, and it eventually got published as a book. But, so far that was in the future, and in June 1940, Jack graduated from Harvard. Harvard, that sounded bad, Harvard. Graduated from Harvard. Europe was at war, but the United States was so far out of it, and Jack received a really nice telegram from his father. thought this was nice. If you know anything about Joseph Kennedy, he has a bad reputation as a very hard and cold man, at least from what I've seen. But uh, little anecdotes here and there made it uh, pretty apparent while studying for this episode that he did care very much about his family. He was a family man, despite maybe pushing them a little harder than needed at times. But Jack received this telegram on graduation and said, quote, Two things I always knew about you. One, that you, were, that you are smart. Two, that you are a swell guy. Love, Dad. End quote. I'm going to start calling people swell guys. You're swell. Anyway, that ended Jack's formal education. And soon he was going to get a much more real-life education because war was about to break out. So it's September of 1939, of course, Germany invades Poland starting World War II. Jack is still at Harvard, graduates in 1940. And then in 1941, as I'm sure many of you know, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor and on December 8, 1941, President Roosevelt asks for a declaration of war against Japan, which is granted, and Germany therefore declares war on the United States, entering us into the greatest global conflict that has ever engulfed the world. Jack Kennedy, being a patriotic American, wants to join the Navy. 
his brother Joe, of course, as is the theme of their life, has joined the Navy and is being trained as a pilot. However, Jack, due to his bad back, as well as other health issues that have plagued him in the past, is initially not able to join the Navy or any other military service because he is not, quote, fit for duty. But Joseph Kennedy, using the connections that he has, helps his son out. Joseph Kennedy was good friends with Alan Kirk. Alan Kirk was the director of naval intelligence and got Jack into the Navy working for the Office of Naval Intelligence, which means he was mostly a states-bound desk jockey. But that all changed in 1942 when Jack was given the opportunity to go to officer training school. So after officer training school, now Lieutenant John Kennedy was put in command of Patrol Torpedo or PT Boat 109. The PT boats were used a lot in the Pacific Theater of War, and that is where John F. Kennedy was sent. And on August 1, 1943, PT-109 was one of 15 PT boats in the Blackett Strait south of Kolumbangara in the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific. They were on a search-and-destroy mission trying to destroy or turn back the Japanese ships that were part of what the United States called the Tokyo Express. It was a fairly regular supply convoy that these PT boats were hoping to disrupt. It did not go to plan. The PT boats found four Japanese destroyers, fired 30 torpedoes, and no damage was done to any of the Japanese ships, but good news was that the PT boats were also not damaged. The boats that had torpedoes left stayed in the Blackett Strait, and the rest went back to reload. PT Boat 109 was one of the few boats that stayed in the strait, and they were running silent and dark, because after all, they were in Japanese waters. And at 2.30 a.m., which would put this at early morning of August 2, I believe, PT Boat 109 saw a ship coming straight at them. Originally, they thought it was another PT boat, but... Short, shortly after seeing the boat, they realized that it was much bigger than a PT boat, and it was actually a Japanese destroyer called the Amagiri, which, despite trying to turn towards starboard, hit Jack Kennedy's PT boat and ripped off the starboard aft side. Kennedy was in the cockpit, got knocked around pretty good. Some of the men were knocked into the water. And one man below decks miraculously survived, but he was the engineer, his name was Patrick McMahon. He was badly injured by exploding fuel. Two men, Harold Marley and Andrew Jackson Kirksey, had disappeared and were likely killed in the collision. So, Kennedy and his men were shipwrecked. And because... Kennedy was afraid that the boat was about to go up in flames. He ordered his men to abandon ship, and they decided to swim to a small island that they could see about three and a half miles away. It's a long way to swim. Now, Kennedy was a strong swimmer. He was on the swim team at Harvard, and many of the men on his PT boat were comparable in terms of their swimming prowess. But Patrick McMahon, very injured, and there were at least two men who could not swim at all. Seems like the Navy was a poor choice. Kennedy swam the entire way to the island, which they called Bird Island once they got there, and he towed McMahon the entire three miles by putting the strap of McMahon's life vest in his teeth, which is wildly impressive. A couple of the other men were strapped to debris, the men that couldn't swim, and towed along by the men that could swim. But seriously, a feat. Uh, swimming in the open ocean in the South Pacific, three and a half miles, 
is impressive enough, but doing it, pulling a full-grown man by your teeth? Say what you want about Jack Kennedy. That was pretty badass. So they got to Bird Island, and Kennedy, despite being exhausted, was worried about how close they were to passing Japanese ships. So he swam down an area called the Ferguson Passage and basically island hopped and clung to reefs until he got near the Blackett Strait and hoped to flag down another PT boat, but he was unsuccessful. And I'm going to kind of condense this story, but basically on August 4, the men decided to abandon Bird Island and swam for Olasana Island. Again, Kennedy towed McMahon in his teeth. And then basically some of the stronger swimmers, mostly Kennedy and a man named Ross, was his last name, I cannot remember his first name, I apologize, did a lot of swimming to different islands trying to find help or trying to find a ship that they could flag down. And beyond that, trying to find some fresh water and food. Jack Kennedy did run into some natives of the islands, and they pointed him in the direction of a two-person canoe so he wouldn't have to be swimming so much. And one of them showed him how he could scratch a message into a coconut husk, which he did so. And those natives then delivered it to an American presence on an island further away. Those Americans, finally on August 8, put together a rescue mission of two PT boats and rescued the men from Olasana Island. Kennedy was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal and qualified for a Purple Heart, but was also launched to hero level, and this set him up well for his future career in politics and leadership. So now World War II has ended. Jack needs to decide what to do with his life. He had considered teaching or maybe becoming a writer, but he ended up in politics. Now, a little refresher. Obviously, earlier we talked about his brother Joe wanted to get into politics, becoming president, and Jack did not really have that ambition. But on a secret mission where Joe Kennedy was a pilot of a plane filled with explosives that he was supposed to bail out of and then they would remote control fly it into strategic targets, did not survive the mission because the plane, due to a malfunction, blew up before he was able to bail out. So Joseph Kennedy was killed in actions. Joseph Kennedy Jr., excuse me. So after the war, Joseph Kennedy Sr. had a long talk with Jack and basically convinced him to take on the Kennedy family political mantle. So, Jack Kennedy, in 1946, decides to run for Congress, and he wins the 11th District Congressional seat in Massachusetts in 1946, where he served for three terms, which is two years apiece, so six total years. And then in 1952, he was elected to the Senate. And soon after his election to the Senate, he met and dated and married Jacqueline Jackie Bouvier. Bouvier? Not really sure how to pronounce that. I should have looked that up. Anyway, now known as Jackie Kennedy. He was 36. She was 24. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but I cannot possibly do a Kennedy series without mentioning the fact that Kennedy was not a faithful husband. And Jackie knew that. But they stayed together. From what I can tell, it seems like there was genuine love there. But a lot of infidelity as well. Possibly on both sides, for sure, from Jack. Now, despite my political leanings being not the same in all aspects of Jack, as Jack Kennedy. And despite the fact that I do think that Jack Kennedy is lionized as a great president because he was assassinated, I do, I kind of like the guy. He's an elitist, and 
He was unfaithful to his wife. But there's something, there's this mystique with the Kennedy family. So I am not out to smear Jack Kennedy. That's not my, that's not my agenda here. So I'm not going to go into details, but just know that the Camelot that they had as their public perception, their public persona while they were in the White House, there was a lot more darkness in private. So something to just keep in mind if you want to look into it more, do so. But that was one of the things that Jack Kennedy was a master at portraying a public face and hiding the garbage that everybody has in their personal life behind that public persona. People loved him for it. You did not talk smack about Jack Kennedy. Someone would have beat you for it. Anyway, I'm digressing. Soon after getting married, Jack Kennedy had a couple of back surgeries. Like I've said multiple times, his back bothered him his entire life. He had some surgeries. His surgeries were not overly successful and at some points caused him multiple infections and excruciating amounts of pain. But while he was recovering from some of these surgeries, he wrote a book called Profiles in Courage. It was about senators who risked their careers fighting for what they believed in. And it was published in 1957 and actually won the Pulitzer Prize. Jack Kennedy is still the only president to have won the Pulitzer Prize. And in 1960, Jack Kennedy decided he was going to run for president. He was almost selected as vice president in 1956, I believe, but was passed over for that ticket. Despite that, 1960 decided he was going to run for president. 1960 was a very, very close election. It was Jack Kennedy versus Richard Nixon. A little trivia about the 1960 election. It was the first election that featured a televised debate. And that debate is possibly one of the reasons that Nixon was defeated in this election. It was televised to the entire nation. Jack Kennedy looked young. He looked like he had a lot of vitality. He looked poised. And he looked healthy. Richard Nixon, not as much. If I remember correctly, I didn't really look into this. I've read before, I believe, that Kennedy actually, in terms of the politics and policies, probably did not win that debate on that alone. But Nixon looked like a sweaty, stuttering mess. He was not a TV-friendly presidential candidate. And because of that, it could have been the deciding factor. People voted for the young, attractive, and composed John F. Kennedy, who was elected to be 35th president on November 8, 1960. He was the youngest president ever elected. And it's that elected that's the key word there. He was 43 years old. Now, you might be thinking, wait, Teddy Roosevelt was president when he was 42, which is true. Teddy Roosevelt is the youngest president to ever serve. However, he was an elevated vice president. He was not elected when he was 42 years old. So Kennedy is the youngest elected president. Still is. Later podcasts, possibly, down the road, I may cover more of the crises that Kennedy had to deal with in his presidency. I don't want to go into that right now. Things like the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs might come up later. Not Something to spend a lot of time on now. But a couple things just to touch on. The president did create the Peace Corps during his presidency. And he was the president who asked Congress to fund Project Apollo to get the man to the moon. Obviously, I've done the space race ad nauseum, so I'm not going to go into that either. Now, November 21, 1963... Just over a thousand days in office, JFK flies to Texas to give multiple speeches. And the next day, November 22, his motorcade took a slow drive through the crowds of Dallas. And we'll find out what happened next time. But for the time being, we need to talk about Lee Harvey Oswald.
So I feel like most, especially Americans, know a good amount about John F. Kennedy. But I feel like Lee Harvey Oswald, not nearly as well known for anything that happened before November 22, 1963. So I wanted to make sure that before we get into the actual assassination, we talk about not just what happened on that day, but what happened in Lee Harvey Oswald's life. Lee Harvey Oswald, born in New Orleans on October 18, 1939. His mother was Marguerite Oswald. His father was Robert Edward Lee Oswald, named after Robert E. Lee. But Lee never met his father because two months before he was born, his father died of a stroke at age 43. Now, Oswald's wife, excuse me, Oswald's mother, Marguerite, was a cold and aloof person. And to give you an idea of how cold, her husband died at age 43, shockingly, unexpectedly, and she buried him the same day. Her husband's family never spoke to her again. They saw her action as unbelievably cold and could never forgive her for it. She's not a good woman. You'll see what I mean coming up. Lee Harvey Oswald did have an older brother, Robert, and he had a older half-brother named John Pick. Robert was five years older than Oswald, and John Pick was seven years older than Oswald. His half-brother, John, was from Marguerite's first marriage, and she had divorced and married Robert and... Lee's father later on. So now, Marguerite, a single mother of three, according to her son Robert, viewed her children more as a tribulation. His words. And because she needed to work and basically viewed her children as an impediment to her making money, she sent the older two to Bethlehem Children's Home, which was sort of like an orphanage but also would take in and care for children who only had one parent, and that parent would have to provide a small sum to provide for their food, at least somewhat, and provide clothing, but the children's home would take care of most of the day-to-day taking care of the children. She tried to send Oswald, but he was too young. They did not take children three or under, so she waited until he was old enough and then reapplied, he was later accepted to the Bethlehem Children's Home as well. Lee spent much of his childhood bouncing around as his mother got different jobs or got married. And for most of his young life, he was a fairly lonely individual. Now, ignoring what happens later in his life, you just cannot help but feel bad for a young boy who really has no parental figure and... Is constantly moving around, does not have very many friends. It's no wonder that he becomes disillusioned and, frankly, mentally ill. He just has no one really to care for him. And his one paternal, excuse me, one parental figure in his life is basically in name only. His mother and his oldest brother, John, worked. Robert went to school was working part-time, Lee spent most of his time alone, and eventually a neighbor described him as, quote, a bad kid, just ornery, vicious almost, end quote. That was when he was about 10 years old. When he was younger, most people described him as kind of a sweet, shy, kept-to-himself type kid, but as he got older and he was neglected more and more, he turned into a bad apple, basically. Now, Marguerite was obsessed with money, and she didn't really spend much time worrying about her children's education or even feeding them well. It was just not a top priority. She gave them food. They weren't neglected and starving, but it wasn't high-quality food. It was a lot of junk food, and it wasn't something that she gave a lot of thought to. Robert and John could not wait to get out on their own. Marguerite was a prickly person. She would often rant about trivial things, threaten to call the police on her own children. And because they were more mature, the older boys were able to kind of shrug it off. 
Lee was not able to do so. He was often often sulky, pouted quite often, uh, but because of their mother's prickly nature, Lee and Robert became quite close. However, in 1952, Robert joined the Marine Corps, and once again, Lee was fairly on his own. He did spend quite a bit of time studying up on the Marine Corps. He got the Marine Corps handbook and talked to his brother whenever he was able to or exchanged letters, and joining the Marine Corps became a dream of Oswald as well. Now, by the time Lee was 13, he pretty much ruled the home. Despite the fact that his mother was cold and aloof, it seemed like she also, ironically or somewhat backwardsly, that's not a word, doted on her youngest son and basically gave him whatever he wanted. It was getting to the point by the time he was 13 that Lee pretty much dominated his mother in every way, even to the point of physically hitting her when he did not get his way. And to show his rebelliousness, Lee started to skip school. John Pick was urging his mother to take Lee to a psychiatrist, but Lee refused to go, and his mother basically had no control over him at that point. Eventually, Lee was tested by a psychologist named Irving Sokolow, and the doctor found, quote, a considerable amount of impoverishment in the social and emotional areas, end quote. So basically, he was emotionally and socially inept. And it was around the time in his early teens that Lee discovered and became a ardent follower of communism. So there was a lot happening in his early teen life. So despite the fact that Oswald bragged about reading Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto by Marx, his Knowledge seemed to be very superficial, and there's no evidence that he studied any other Marxist scholars. So despite the fact that he spent most of the rest of his life bragging up communism and considering, considering himself an ardent follower, it seemed that it was fairly superficial. I apologize for all the stuttering and stumbling. I'm uh, a little tired, I guess. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway. October of 1956, Lee turned 17, and within a week, he had enlisted in the Marine Corps. It was a six-year enlistment. Three of those years would be active service, and three would be reserve years. He had been dreaming of this since he was a boy, following in his brother Robert's footsteps. And during his tr time in training in boot camp, Lee scored a 212 on the firing range. Now, this is very important. We're going to talk about things later in terms of conspiracies and things like that. But Lee was trained by the Marine Corps to shoot, and he scored on the range two points above the threshold of sharpshooter in the Marine Corps qualification. So he was ranked below expert, but above marksman. He was a good shot with his rifle. But it was in the Marines that Lee started to get politically raged against the Korean War, and obviously was not shy about spreading the fact that he was a communist follower. And this did not endear him to his fellow Marines, as you can imagine. Again, keep in mind, this is during the height of some of the most tense years of the Cold War. Which was with the Soviet Union, a communist nation. It was not a good time for Americans to be communists. And yet, Lee Harvey Oswald made no bones about it. He was a communist, and he didn't care who knew it. He was very argumentative and unpopular among the Marines. It seems like he was always playing devil's advocate just for the fun of it, and didn't have a lot of friends. March of 1957, Lee is sent to Jacksonville, Florida for Naval, Naval Air Technical Training Center, and on May 3, he is given access to confidential, quote, materials, it is the lowest grade of security clearance, but necessary for his continued training. No, he was not given access to top secret information, which he could sell to the Soviets. Keep that in mind for later. So eventually, in August of 1957, Lee embarked on the USS Bexar for transport to Yokosuka, excuse me, Yokosuka, Japan, and duty at the Atsugi Naval Air Station. 
And Atsugi was one of the staging bases for the U-2 spy plane. Again, feeding into conspiracy theories that think that Lee used that information to get special treatment when he went to Russia. We'll get to that. And there's, but there, however, there is no evidence that his unit or Oswald had any knowledge or interaction with anything to do with the U-2 whatsoever. He just happened to be at the same base. Now, testimony from the Marines at Atsugi later said that Lee was often in trouble for, quote, failing to adhere to rules and regulations and for his express and open dislike of authority exercised by his superiors in the Marines, end quote. Yeah, that's a bad recipe in the Marine Corps where <laughs> you are expected to adhere to the authorities without question. So it's not looking good for Lee Oswald in the Marines. His dream job slowly unraveling. During a temporary assignment in the Philippines, Lee learned to, quote, sympathize with local communists and conceived a hatred for U.S. Mil militarist imperialism for exploiting Filipino natives, end quote. That is his words, the U.S. militarist imperialism. That is a direct quote that he used. Now, things are starting to go downhill. 1958, Lee was starting to slip in his military career, earning his lowest marks in a semi-annual evaluation. And you can clearly see that he is starting to become not just disillusioned with the Marine Corps, but with the United States in general and the leaders of said United States. It was at this point where it starts to become clear from later study that Oswald was starting to plan his defection to the Soviet Union. Lee was extremely dissatisfied, trying to figure out a way to get out of the Marine Corps. Keep in mind, it's only been a year or two. He's in there for six years. He signed up, signed on the dotted line. He needs a plan. And that plan coalesced around an injury to his mother. Now, it was not a life-threatening injury by any means. She was at work, and I think she slipped and dropped a jar on her face, which honestly cracks me up a little bit because she's such a nasty person. Anyway, because his mother injured herself and was a single woman, Oswald filed for a hardship discharge, which basically means I need to leave the Marine Corps so that I can go care for my mother. He stated that his mother's health did not allow her to hold a job and he needed to go home to take care of her. He applied for a passport, which was granted to him on September 10, and on September 11, Lee Harvey Oswald was released from active duty as a United States Marine on a dependency discharge. Shortly after his discharge, with no intention of taking care of his mother after all, Lee put his defection plan in motion. He boarded a ship in New Orleans that sailed to France, a port in France, uh, Le Havre, I think. And from France, he went to London. From London, he got on a plane and flew to Helsinki, Finland. Now, Finland shares a border with the Soviet Union, and it was one of the common border-crossing areas in the world. So while in Finland, Lee applied for a visa to visit the Soviet Union. And even still at this point, Lee is obviously troubled emotionally and possibly mentally. And I still feel bad for him at this point. He's, he's still only 19 years old. And yeah, he's kind of a dick. But man, nobody really ever taught this kid how to appropriately act. And there's a part of me that thinks this whole defection to the USSR is just another rebellion against his family and trying to find his own way. And he went about it in a really radical way. Normal 19-year-olds find their own way by, like, going to art school or something like that. No, he went to the Soviet Union. He listed his reasoning for traveling to the USSR as being a student, and he was quickly, quickly granted a visa. Now, his defection wasn't official. He was granted a visa to join, join, to visit the Soviet Union for just a short amount of time. But he needed to get into the Soviet Union before he could defect. So he is granted a visa and crossed the Finnish-Soviet border on October 15, 1959, and the next day he arrived in Moscow. 
So while in Moscow, he meets Rima Sherkova. She's an in-tourist rep who is in charge of giving him the luxury tour. In-tourist is basically a travel agency within the Soviet Union that is responsible for showing around foreign visitors. And during the tour, Oswald starts telling Rima about his life. And she must have been sympathetic because she decided she wants to help him when he said he wanted to stay in the USSR, step one of his defection. He gave his reasonings as his political views. He was a communist and he did not approve of the American way of life. So Oswald wrote a letter to the Supreme Soviet on October 16 and requested a citizenship in the Soviet Union. He was two days away from his 20th birthday. So October 21, after this letter is written, he's interviewed by an official about his citizenship request. And the official basically tells Oswald, just go home. This ain't going to work out for your kid. Just go home. And he does tell him that despite the fact that he's not going to grant him citizenship, he will see if he can get the visa extended. Now, this interviewer is actually not just a citizenship rep. He is a KGB official named Abram Shaknazarov, and basically was giving Oswald a debriefing. He's an American citizen coming to the United States. Obviously, the KGB was interested to see if this was anything fishy, and they needed to talk to Oswald. Shaknazarov is unimpressed with Lee. He's clearly just a disturbed youth. He does not have access to classified material, and even if he had access to it and would have offered it to the KGB, they had decided that it would have been unreliable and would not have accepted or believed anything he provided. Lee is also not a good person to use as a propaganda device. Look who defected to the Soviet Union because America sucks. Nothing like that. So in short, the USSR had no benefit to letting Lee Harvey, Lee Harvey Oswald stay. So they were going to do their best to make sure that he didn't. Now, on that same day, the chiefs of both the 1st and 2nd Directorate of the KGB, uh, which is the directorates that are responsible for intelligence and counterintelligence slash internal security, wrote that they had no interest in Oswald, and they advised against granting citizenship to Oswald. Now, Oswald is informed that he must leave Moscow on October 21 by 8 p.m. He's crushed. He's been keeping a diary of his time in the Soviet Union, and he writes in his diary that he plans to commit suicide by slashing his wrist. And shortly after 2.45, Rima is coming to the hotel to pick him up and take him to, Mos to take him out of Moscow and finds him unconscious in his hotel room in the bathtub with a cut vein on his left arm. He is rushed to a Moscow hospital for diplomats and foreigners, and doctors at the hospital save his life. Maybe. Now, some doctors at this hospital have said that it is not a serious suicide attempt, and many think that it was just a dramatic manipulation of Oswald's. But Hospital records do refer to it as a suicide attempt attempt multiple times. I am sorry about the stuttering. And a psychiatrist who examined Oswald has stated on the record that it was a sure suicide attempt. So, hard to say one way or the other. Now, Oswald is in the hospital for a week. And of that seven days, three of those were spent in the mental ward. And when he is discharged, he again tries to apply for USSR citizenship. At the same time, he also goes to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow with the purpose of renouncing his U.S. citizenship for political purposes. He is going all in, full bore. He's pretty much in a holding pattern at this point because he's allowed to stay in the USSR. His visa has technically expired. He has attempted to get rid of his American citizenship and he is basically stuck in the hotel called the Metropole Hotel until a solution is determined. He is a man with no country and basically can't leave the motel, the hotel. Finally, 
late November, it was decided that Oswald could remain in the USSR under temporary residence for one year, and then his citizenship would be reevaluated at that point. So he isn't granted citizenship, but he's allowed to stay for a year. He is given a job in Minsk in Belarusia, which now we know is Belarus, in electronics, and he has his own apartment and was given a fairly decent sum of money as well to get him started. Now, there's a couple reasons why the USSR decided to go with this temporary measure. If the USSR forces Oswald to leave, he might actually kill himself and succeed in committing suicide this time. The U.S. may believe that is a KGB murder. That's not a good look for the USSR. And if they forced to deport a 20-year-old kid by forcibly detaining him and putting him on a plane, that would look very messy diplomatically because it would look like the USSR bullying a young American. So they decided he was harmless and he could stay. Oswald, for his part, was relieved that he was allowed to stay, but he was disappointed that he was not granted citizenship, and he was also disappointed that he was not allowed to stay in Moscow. He was shipped off to what we now know as Belarus. So despite the fact that they were uninterested and viewed him as fairly harmless, the KGB did keep Oswald under surveillance. After all, he was an American, and it was the Cold War, and they needed to make sure. This was not an uncommon practice. Many foreigners were kept under surveillance by the KGB, and files were kept on them just in case. You don't become one of, if not the greatest, spy agency in the entire history of the world without by being complacent. You get to that point by being vigilant and being suspicious of literally everybody. He was kept under constant surveillance, and there is not a single record from after the fall of the Soviet Union that has ever come to light that ever showed that there was any information that Oswald had that he tried to offer or that there was any interest in the Soviets in the Soviets in any potential information that Oswald had. It just was not a thing at all. Oswald was not a spy. He was not there to give traitorous information, and the KGB was not interested, even if he could. They simply did not believe that he had any reliable information, and the little bit that Oswald pretended to know, like radar information, was basically things that could be learned from a textbook, and Oswald never even mentioned the fact that at one point he was stationed at the same base as the U-2 spy plane. Now, even if he had mentioned that, which seems like if he was a spy that wanted to give information, it would be information the KGB would like to have, he knew nothing about the U-2 spy plane program that would benefit the Soviets in any way, shape, or form. Long story short, Oswald was just a troubled young man living in the USSR, there was nothing nefarious going on whatsoever. But Lee settled into Soviet life pretty well. He was working, and for the first time in his life, he actually had a social group that he did social activities with. But like most things in his life, after he attained the thing that he'd been dreaming about for so long, he shortly became disillusioned. He was expecting the USSR to be a Marxist utopia, and instead he got Soviet communism, which is not at all a classless society. He was hoping for it. It definitely definitely was the same as many other countries, with an elite class and the working class that were marginalized. He began to start focusing start to focus on Cuba. Cuba and Castro he considered to be the last stronghold in the world of true Marxism. On February 13, 1961, the U.S. Embassy received a letter from Oswald asking for his passport back. Remember, he tried to denounce his citizenship. 
because he wanted to return to the United States. Yes, all of his planning, all of his begging and pleading, his suicide attempt, and not even two years later, he wanted to go back to the United States. Not a great look. Definitely indicative of his troubled and volatile nature. He made several requests to the embassy over the next month or so, and on March 17, he went to a dance organized by his trade union and complicated his life even more because there he met Marina Prusakova. And just a month later, after just a few dates, Marina agreed to marry Oswald, and they got married on April 30, 1961. Lee was 21, Marina was 19. Now, it is unknown at this time whether Marina actually loved Lee when they got married or if it was kind of a farce. But one thing we know for sure is she did not marry him because she wanted to come to the United States. It was a dream of hers to go to the United States, but at the time she married Lee, he lied to her, one of the many lies he told her, and said that he had renounced his citizenship and could never return to the United States. Then in July of 1961, to make things even more complicated, Marina was pregnant. Now, Oswald continued to try to leave the Soviet Union, but it was difficult, and it became more difficult after he got married because the Soviet Union did not want Marina to leave with her new husband. That's the control they had over their citizens. They could determine whether someone could leave the country or not. It was a pretty terrible time for Oswald, but probably even more terrible for Marina. She was in an unhappy marriage. She was emotionally abused and maybe emotionally abusive as well. And Lee was definitely physically abusive towards Marina, hitting her and screaming and shouting. So after loads of diplomatic back and forth that I am not going to go into because it's extremely tedious, finally on Christmas Day 1961, the Oswalds were informed that they were allowed to leave the Soviet Union so that they could go back to the United States. But it wasn't until June of 1962 that the Oswalds, Lee, Marina, and their new baby, also named June, boarded a train in Moscow to Rotterdam in the Netherlands, which is a port city, and then they boarded a ship that was bound for New York. And now we're going to condense things, try to get to some of the more important information, and show how Lee R.V. Oswald went from troubled youth to assassin. So Lee... Continued to live the life that you'd pretty much expect. He bounced around to multiple jobs, beat and argued with his wife, and moved to different houses, different cities even, and just kind of existed as a loser. January 27, I believe this would be in 1962 or 1963. Oh boy, I should have written that down. 1963, excuse me, 1963. Uh, January 27, Oswald orders a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. Yes, you could order revolvers through the mail at this point in time. And on March 12, 1963, Oswald ordered a Manlicker Carcano carbine from Klein Sporting Goods, which is a mail order from Chicago. Both the pistol he had ordered and the rifle arrived on the same day, March 20. Now, here's where we get to some extraordinarily important information in Lee Harvey Oswald's life prior to November of 1963. April of 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald attempted to assassinate General Edwin Walker. At this point, Lee Oswald has become extremely vocal in his support of communism, Cuba, and Castro, and he is becoming a more and more violent person wanting to rid the world of anti-communism and what he would consider fascists. General Edwin Walker is a retired general. He is a World War II decorated soldier, but he was ultra right-wing and viciously anti-communist. Now, I'm not going to say that Edwin Walker was a good guy. If communist is very far left, Edwin Walker was on the very other end of the spectrum. 
and that's not even getting into his view on civil rights and things of that nature. That being said, did he deserve to get shot? No. Oswald saw himself as a communist fighter, and he wanted to help out Cuba by taking out General Walker. Evening of April 10, Walker is sitting at his desk around 9 p.m. looking at his tax returns, and he is suddenly startled by a blast and a sharp crack that he initially thought was a firecracker that got tossed through the window. So he got up, looked around, and that's when he noticed that the window was broken and there was a bullet hole in the wall about three to four inches away from where his head had been. Yes, Oswald missed. He had shot at Walker with the Manlicker Carcano that he had ordered, but he had shot through a closed window, and the bullet nicked the wooden window frame running horizontally through the window, which deflected it just enough to save the general's life, but the general was slightly wounded because the window frame also stripped off the full metal jacket of the bullet, which embedded partly in the general's arm. Now, after having some time to think about his near death, the general surmised, based on his expertise, that the glare of the light from the room probably made the wooden frame invisible, especially if the sniper, Oswald, was using a telescopic sight, and obviously a sniper would not be focusing on the window in front of the general, he would be focused solely on the general, and that wooden frame would basically become invisible to him. It's not surprising that the bullet nicked it. It is not indicative of Oswald's lack of skill as a rifleman. It is just a fluky accident. Conspiracy theorists can take fluky accident and turn it into anything they want. If you haven't caught on yet, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I'm going to lay out why later. Oswald was never caught, obviously, but testimony from his wife conclude that uh, was obtained after the assassination of Kennedy pretty substantially concludes that it was Oswald who fired at General Walker. Oswald moves his family to New Orleans. He tries to start a branch of the Fair Play for Cuba committee in New Orleans and starts passing out leaflets, leaflets stating hands off Cuba. This is around the time shortly after the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, so Cuba was on everybody's mind. And Oswald's hope of becoming a political agitator and continuing a political career fizzles out after about four and a half, four and a half months. And he decides he needs to do something else drastic. So in September and early October, he went to Mexico City, where again he visits the Soviet and Cuban embassies trying to get an entrance visa to Cuba. He is denied. And after being denied, he moves back to Texas, where he is near his wife and now two children, but they are not living together. They are separated Lee Harvey Oswald is living in a boarding house, and Marina with the kids are living in Irving, Texas with an acquaintance named Ruth Payne. On Wednesday, October 16, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald is given a job and starts working at the Texas School Book Depository in Dallas, Texas. He lives in Dallas and then would visit his wife and children on the weekends. On Thursday... In late November, Oswald asks a co-worker, Wesley Frazier, who is Ruth Payne's neighbor, I believe, if he can get a ride into Irving, Texas, where Marina is. And Wesley remembers this because it's odd for Oswald to ever ask for a ride when it was not a Friday. Oswald gets to Irving. He attempts to make up with Marina, but despite the fact that she is... Considering it, she's not easily sold, and she is not ready to move back into him and resume their married life. Friday morning, Lee leaves for work. He tells Marina that he left $170 on the bureau, and later, Marina also finds his wedding ring. 
Lee gets into Wesley Frazier's car and he has a large package with him. It is a few feet long, it's wider at the bottom than the top, and it's wrapped in brown paper. Frazier asks Lee why he doesn't have a lunch. Lee says he will buy one at work. And Frazier also asks why, what is in the package, which Lee responds, it's curtain rods. The date is November 22, 1963. Next time on the Curiosity Chronicles, we'll dive into what happened on that morning of November 22, 1963. And I will also lay out the evidence that, in my mind, definitively proves without a doubt that Lee Harvey Oswald was the assassin and was acting alone. The following episode after that, we will get into conspiracy theories, and I will do the best I can to debunk some of the prominent conspiracy theories, once again, to prove that no one was involved other than a disturbed, mentally ill 24-year-old loser named Lee Harvey Oswald. So tune in next time. It's good to be back. This is the Curiosity Chronicles. I am your host, Brett Bilesma, and I hope that you stay curious.